Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 22, How to Let the Data Speak. Okay, so the, by now you should have a good grasp that the ideographic approach is looking at how particular traits and other features are expressed, structured, and combined within the person. Um, if, you if you just compare a person's score to the mean, you miss out on understanding what's crucial about personality, which is the pattern and organization for a unique person. It, you miss out on account of the development of personality. You miss out on how different components of the system interact, which is the dynamic sort of if-then features. And you miss out on how context shapes experience. So that's actually quite a lot to miss out on, because you're not kind of fleshing out personality in a sense. Um, what also gets left out, because this used to be a favorite exam question of mine, I'm not sure if I'd use it this year, but what also gets left out is you wouldn't pick up on a person's motives, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. You miss out on the fact that different people have differing degrees of insight. So if I get you to rate your emotions and how relevant your emotions are to a particular situation, but you're Alexa Simon, you don't have words for feelings, you don't actually have insight into your emotions. And that's one of those really unfortunate things. If I ask a psychopath, do you think you do harm to others? Oh, not really. I killed a few people, but no, nothing serious, you know. <laughs> In other words, varying degrees of insight. Um, you'd miss out on intrapsychic conflict, procrastination, how people evaluate themselves. Are they tough on themselves? Like if I'm sort of saying, yes, I'm a very angry person, I once sort of refused to share my milkshake. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, how angry is that in comparison to other people? What, what are you comparing yourself to? Um, you also miss out on the fact that sometimes people know that they ruminate or know that they're anxious, but they're actually taking measures to try and become less so. So they're actually really onto that and working with that aspect of their personality. And you miss out on the dynamic adaption uh, to the environment. Also, you miss out on the, the whole sense of the unique individual if they're just, you know, one element that you're comparing to a group means. One of the things that I think is fascinating is that as we are now, as we are shaped now as humans, we are the product of our ancestors sort of trying to survive in a sense. So even as we're desperately trying to adapt and survive and reproduce and pass on our genes now, and certain features of our personality are therefore going to carry on, um, so too is our makeup the product of those distant, remote environments of who it was that managed to survive those particular challenges. So what we inherit, in a sense, is the residue of dynamic adaptions in the past as well. Now, while behavioral geneticists estimate heritability, the bit that I'm more interested in, to be honest, is the, the way that the environment influences personality and how much and how it actually shapes different personality dispositions. Now, and so comparing individual to aggregate scores has its place, but somebody like Winter says that's never going to really help you to truly understand a person or to predict what they're likely to do. Like just knowing where they are you know, in terms of standard deviations, it tells you something, but it doesn't really give you a, a feeling or an understanding, and it doesn't enable you to predict. So ideographic theorists who are about the science of the unique 
and the individual. Can they be scientific? And in what ways might they aspire to being scientific? That's one of the themes of today. Well, what Runyon suggests is that one of the things that we can do is search for individualized traits that are particular to a given person. Another thing that one can do is identifying central themes in an individual life, and that you can then describe the patterning or organization of the variables within a single case. And then you can try, within that single case, to explore the causal relations. So if you were lucky enough to be able to interview someone like, say, Charles Manson, who was a, like a famous cult leader who was unbelievably destructive and murdered an array of people, you would have the opportunity to piece together a, some kind of causal story, taking into account being in prison for many years, severely medicated, schizophrenia, so all sorts of things are going to get in the way of full insight. But you can bring your knowledge of those limitations to putting that picture together. And you can then make predictions about a single case based on those trends or patterns. And that, I think that's something that's well worth doing. Like if you were to get, you know, five people who had truly excelled in the Olympics and you were to ask them for their life stories, I would imagine that you would find central themes to their lives, no problem at all. And you'd be able to look at what caused them uh, to take the, the, the stance that they did towards competition and excellence. I want to now... Um, go to the case of Jenny, which is one of the readings um, that I've already put up online. So Jenny, and this is her son, okay, and so it's a triangle really, it's Jenny and her son and her son's roommate. So Gordon Allport asked 36 people to read published letters between Jenny and Glenn. Glenn is actually Gordon Allport, I should just let you know that. Okay. They then had to list what they saw as the essential characteristics of Jenny. As they saw them, Okay, so a bit of, bit of subjectivity in there. He combined the list and found that out of all of these 36 people, there were about 198 traits. And so that's an average of 5.5 per judge. Gordon Allport was the person who said, if you ask anyone to describe a stranger, they will name five traits. So he was pretty pleased that it ended up being 5.5. He then found that there was sufficient overlap in that, and he could combine them into eight clusters. So everything except for 13 of the trays fitted into his eight clusters. Intriguingly enough, Page came along in the 60s and analyzed those same letters by computer and found that the important words could be broadly classified on the basis of tags into sort of like about 83 categories. And this is from a pre-existing dictionary that the computer has. If you're interested in these programs, they're very, very readily available. Uh, James Pennebaker has got one that we've got in the psychology department that has got a pre-existing dictionary, and it will tag whatever you chunk through it. So if you find an interesting data source, and that's something that you want to pursue as your research, we have these kinds of things, just to let you know. So what the computer looks for is the co-occurrence of words across the entire set of the letters from Jenny. So when Jenny uses the word possess, what other tags did she use at the same time? Like what went with what? What correlated, if you like, or co-occurred? And they looked at the sort of the clusters of tags. And they found that the tags arose, that the sort of possessiveness tags were things like attempt, Ross, and money talk. Now Ross is the name of Jenny's son. 
And Page suggests this reflected Jenny's attempts to bind Ross to her by legal and financial means. So they're trying to sort of make sense of those co-occurrences or clusters. So the label possessiveness is his subjective decision, just like it's my decision to label a factor in a particular way when I do a factor analysis. But the co-occurrence of those tags is objective fact. It's just the case that they tend to go together and co-occur. The interesting thing for me um, is looking, comparing the computer and the human. Did their ratings agree? What's amazing, if you look at the table, I think it's 12.3, is that um, there's actually enormous similarities. The only thing that the computer got that the humans didn't get was sexuality, which I think is so interesting. It's like, mother-son sexuality, we don't want to go there as humans, so we don't. But the computer has no such qualms and difficulties. Okay, so there's, there's actually quite strong correlations between the way that they were coded by human raters and by computer raters. So that means it's quite likely that those themes, those attributes, those tags are objectively there in the letters because both human and non-human observers cluster them in roughly the same sorts of ways. Now what's interesting is that Allport's letter of recommendation, um, Jenny was living in an era and she was living in New York when there was no welfare state, so there was no one, nothing to look after her in her old age. She had lived so frugally that she lived virtually in a broom cupboard and went without food so that her son could go to the best colleges, etc. Everything about her life and her entire future was invested in his continued existence. And he died in his late 30s. So she lost the sort of the love of her life and the source of security in her life. So she suddenly was completely penniless and needed to go into a, a home to be cared for. And he had to convey to them the kind of character that she was without making them think, no, she's too difficult. We don't want her in the home. She's going to cause interpersonal difficulties with other residents. But he had to sort of say, if you treat her with respect, then she will be a lovely, artistic, you know, fabulous person to have around. If you diminish her and control her and you know, overview her every activity, she won't be so great. So he was trying to convey to them the kind of context that they should set up for Jenny. Now, you can broadly analyse his letter in roughly the same way, but you notice that the language is really different. It's far more prosocial. It's, it's making her seem like a more desirable character, even though he's trying to be honest and outline the same attributes of her personality. So that's what that chapter goes into some detail about. So the, the humans missed the sexuality. Um, they didn't want to sort of see the romantic aspect of the way she described her activities with her son. She was disgusted with his immoral relations with women. He was in his 30s, you know, hey. Um, she had vicarious enjoyment of affection via her contact with Gordon Allport's family. We don't want to really see affection as being part of sexuality, but the computer certainly did link it in some way. Okay, so what this means is that you can actually look for unique or unusual combinations of adjectives within a broad tray cluster. But what comes out of ideographic analysis like this is so much richer. It's like, you know, real 
TV drama as opposed to soap operas. Like these are full, rounded characters rather than the slightly flat, stereotypic characters. She's self-centered. She's got a martyr complex. Yeah? She, but she sacrifices herself completely. She lives in a room cupboard and goes without food. But it's because she's possessive. You know? So in other words, there are these conflicting currents within the one person's character. And it, it captures that sort of dynamic, conflicting, unusual array of attributes. It doesn't simplify them. It shows what she was self-sacrificing about and why and towards whom and in what contexts. Okay. But the question is, how representative is this data? Well, look, they're letters. You know, we're not quite so careful about our emails, but they're lasting residues of our exchanges with others, aren't they? They last a lot longer than we sometimes think they will. They can be forwarded on, etc. Like they're really objective, you know, events in a sense. But in those days, there was a way that you wrote letters. That, you know, you, you addressed people very politely. There were things you didn't say. There were ways of saying awkward things. So it's got that whole sort of discourse of how to write a letter. Also, he selected which letters he published. He kept her private, I would say, and kept her safe. He probably made himself look good too, you know? It's like there's always a bit of social desirability in there. What the letters don't capture is the background historical features. She was a widow. She didn't have family. She didn't have money. There was no social security, Medicare, or welfare. She was right on the edge. That makes you sort of see her investment in her son, I think, in a different light, you know, culturally and historically. And there's a danger in ascribing to personality something that may actually be due to the historical situation or the cultural moment. In 1994, I, and which was at the height of the Howard years, I did some research with um, Aboriginal women in Redfern and white women in Ayers. I tried to sort of compare them for poverty levels. I couldn't find white people that were as poor as Aboriginal people in Sydney. Um, and I then looked at what predicted suicidality in those women. And one of the biggest predictors was conflictual relations with their partner. Okay, now, that would have been very difficult research for me to publish at that moment, and I elected not to publish it, in fact, for that very reason, because it would be so easy for someone to take it out of context and say, see, Aboriginal people are their own worst enemy. The thing that makes these women hopeless and feel suicidal is the way that they're treated by their menfolk. That would have been ignoring the fact that it's much easier for Aboriginal women to get employment in Sydney than it is for Aboriginal men because they're not quite as threatening as Aboriginal men. Um, that both of them were existing in a context of you know, poverty where dependents would come in from the country and stay for sometimes quite limitless periods of, of time, and, and you would be responsible for the welfare and well-being of all of these people, sometimes in small spaces and things as Redfern was in 94. So I wasn't game to put that out there for fear that those research findings would be decontextualized and reported in that way. That would have been an awkward thing for me to accidentally have done when I was intending to help shed light on what was actually happening. Okay, so you've got to take that fairly seriously. Okay, a brief sort of um, aerial view of the lecture now, just zipping up to a mountaintop for a moment and we'll dip back down in in a moment. I want to put this forward um, because these are things that, that come up for me when I'm working with PhD students and I suddenly realised I've never included this in a lecture up until now, but I actually think 
I should, because these are the things that I end up speaking to PhD students with, you know, in the first few months when we're getting projects up and running. So I want to sort of give it to you now to make you think in this way for your own possible future research. So I want you to get wild and crazy about possible data sources, basically. Um, Self-report question is, sure, they're, they're great. You can profile people. But if you can then get some other data source as well as a profile of people, you've got a multi-method piece of research, which is just a fabulous way to work. You can then look at things that already exist for that person. So there's no social des desirability. They're not producing it for you. It's something they would have produced anyway or have produced anyway letters or archival documents. You can also look at things like public performances. One of my doctoral students, Andrew, who's just graduating now, um, looked at musical performance and actually talked to people before and after the performance and at half time and he attended the performance and looked at what happened on stage and calibrated all of that. You can look at blogs, creative writing. You can look at what a person dedicates their life to, what they do while they're procrastinating what they think about while they're ruminating. All of these things that, that are the sort of forgotten sort of refuse of personality are very much the stuff of personality. And you can gather data on that and analyze it in all sorts of ways, but particularly the ways that I'm hoping to cover a little bit today. The other thing that you need to think about if you, you are doing this wild sort of portable science kind of research um, where you go to the phenomena rather than bringing them into the lab, is you have to sort of work out, okay, what kind of analysis is going to work for me? Am I a blank slate? Like, do I know nothing about this at all? Okay. And that's a really good way to work. Um, I find it very difficult to work in that way because usually if I'm interested in something, it's because I already know stuff about it a bit, right? I don't know much about self-harm, but I know a bit about why people cut and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I've got some hunches. I wouldn't have hypotheses, but I've got hunches, all right? So if I'm a total blank slate, I can go grounded theory, which is a way of that you just code every single line of whatever it is you're analyzing, and then you generate, you know, higher order codes from there. Or you can do what's called phenomenological analysis. You just go in and let the person speak to you because you're not guiding it or shaping it or changing it at all. Now, there's a great ways of working. If you've got hunches, then that's not such a great way of working because you've already got what's called sensitized concepts. There's already things that are going to be salient for you, like, oh, I'm really interested in that. Oh, funny you should say that because so-and-so in 1995 was saying that was the case too. And you're suddenly going to be really alert to those things. If that's the case, then it's going to be modified analytic induction will be the methodology for you. Now, this won't mean too much to you now, but in a couple of years, you may remember this slide. If you've got full-blown hypotheses, you're into the full-on scientific method. You could possibly even use known scales, etc. But if it's an area where there isn't much theory already, but you want to break new ground, then grounded theory and modified analytic induction is the way to go for you. If you've got implicit theories, that's a bit of a danger because it means you've got theories about things that you don't know about. Okay, So you want to make your implicit theories explicit at all costs. right? And there are all sorts of ways that you can set up your, your study so that the data tells you that you've got an implicit theory and that bits of it are wrong. And that's good science. 
that's really good science. Okay. If you've got prejudices, okay, that's a real problem. I hope you've got co-workers and co-researchers that are going to call you on it, you know, because you definitely don't want to be doing prejudicial research. One of the most beautiful but terrifying articles. So if you've got a history that's going to make this dangerous for you to read, don't read the Gilgan article. But if you can cope, it's well worth reading. Um, what she did was she wanted to talk to people that were incest perpetrators um, that had either interfered with their own children or their close relatives or that sort of thing. And she wanted to go in and analyse the frequency with which notions like justice, harm and care emerged in the discourse of these people who had committed these crimes. What she actually found she was not looking for was that these people viewed their actions in the framework of love. They saw what they were doing as an expression of love, and I've got it in scare quotes, because obviously it doesn't conform to um, a wider conception of love, but it was very much how the people viewed it. And it's a testimony to her, I think, and to her objectivity, that she was able to try and understand what love meant to those people. Okay, so that's that's a, a really amazing article. She uses a modified analytic induction because she went in with hunches, looking for justice, harm, and care, but she ended up having to rejig the whole way that she saw um, the field. Okay, so yeah, very powerful stuff. The, the next thing, how do you let the data speak to you? How do you let it tell you you're wrong and right and need to reconsider? One of the ways that you know, I would suggest that you don't engage in qualitative research is by cherry-picking. Now, what cherry-picking is, um, say I'm uh, a Freudian and I want to believe that psychoanalysis makes people better, and um, so I interview a whole lot of people, and every time they say, oh, yeah, and then I felt really bad and I trashed myself for five weeks solid after my first... Well, I just ignore that because that's obviously not relevant. This is, you know, not telling me about psychoanalytic treatment at all. And then I felt better for three seconds. Oh, great, felt better for three seconds, right? Okay, that's cherry picking. That's where I'm hearing what's sweet to my ears and I'm only focusing on that and I'm ignoring everything else. That's why sometimes you have to go line by line in your coding and that's why you need a co-investigator who goes line by line in your coding and goes, why didn't you code this bit? Oh, yeah, because I didn't want to have that as part of the analysis, do you? I had a really fantastic PhD student years ago, an absolutely mad cyclist, thought motorists were just trash, basically, and wanted to analyse all of the things that had happened in the newspaper when some cyclists had been run over in a road rage event by a motorist. And I was going, okay, we've got to do open coding, line-by-line analysis. It was like, no way, because the motorists say some nice things. And I'm going... Sorry, <laughs> you've got to, got to have the balanced picture in there. So that was a really powerful moment. It was hard for me because I was quite on side too with the, the cycling side, even though I love cars. But yeah, so open coding's got a lot going for it. It means that nothing escapes you, but it's really dull sometimes. It's really labor intensive. You've got an hour long interview, you're coding every line, it's full on. And if you code according to your hunches, You've got to be alert to the fact that sometimes the data's going to go, your hunches are wrong, your implicit theories are only part of the story, there's this whole other thing 
that you haven't even looked at that you need to take seriously. And you actually, if you really are invested in the science of thing rather than being right, you actually feel joy when your data starts to disconfirm your hypotheses. You obviously need co-raters to unseat your prejudices. And the worst thing, and I think it's very, very common in contemporary psychology, is harking, where you hypothesize after the results are known. You hit return, you look and see what's correlated with what, you find out what goes with what, and then you work out why you found that. You're capitalizing on chance. That's not actually science. It actually impedes the progress of science. So, so the heart of today's lecture, science is whether or not you let the data speak and how much you let it speak. And it's not based on the presence of numbers, and it's not based on whether it's qualitative or quantitative research. Okay. This next little bit's also from the chapter that by Winter, The Analysis of Lives. I just want to tell you it because I think this is really cool. I think it's a very cool modification of self-report questionnaires. And I'm going to pick up on it, not next week, but the week after. So if you can just keep this in mind as a good way of working. So if I bore you stiff and I give you a 210-item questionnaire and I get you to rate every kid in your class, then you're a teacher, and then I get the parents to rate every kid on the class, or I get two other teachers to rate the kids. There's actually not much overlap. There's about 0.5 overlap. But if instead of doing that, I get those same three teachers and I say, could you please just asterisk for me any traits that you think are of absolute importance to that child's personality, of central importance? Then what you find is that the, the, the teachers can find the same things to be true about those kids. So long as they don't have to report on stuff that isn't relevant to the child, they can pick out the ones that do define and describe that child. And actually, the overlap suddenly is looking very respectable indeed, 0.95. No arguing with that as a stat. So I think that's actually a very nice way to go. This won't mean anything to you, but just hold it in mind. Q sorts operate on that principle, that you pick the things that are central to a personality. That's, how, that's one of the ways that Q sorts work, and I'm going to be picking up on that in two weeks' time. So what it means is that ideographic method can achieve reliability, which is one of the things that you want in science. You can get inter-observer reliability. Okay. Now, if you don't want to just focus on trays, you want to get at motives. You've got to be sneaky. And there are really neat, sneaky ways of getting at motives. There's some old-fashioned ways, too, that I'm going to be telling you about. But I'm also going to tell you about a technique that I've found very useful with a lot of the people that I work with. OK. Motives. One of the difficult things about motives is sometimes you know if you're competitive, right? But how competitive are you right now? That's very difficult. You, it's hard to know the strength of your personal motives. We can know our goals, though. Like, if I ask you, what's your goal? That's probably to get a degree, right? You sort of know those things. How motivated are you to do that right now? Okay, much harder. Okay, it's hard because your motives are often just, you know, like salmon running in the stream. You don't really know how many of them and how fast they're swimming, right? It's very hard to assess that. Those are some articles that are around if you're interested in pursuing this further. And I can put them online, obviously. OK, this next slide is utterly crucial, even though it looks utterly boring. There are two types of motivational systems that we need to know about at the level of motives. One are 
implicit and they're very affect associated. So lots to do with emotion. Then there's an explicit model of motivation and it's got to do with cognition. So it's a kind of cooler kind of thought process. And they're quite different and you would assess them in different ways. So the ones that really predict what you're likely to do are the implicit ones. Isn't that amazing? They're the ones that are the best predictors of what a person's likely to do. Whereas explicit goals and things are quite good at predicting what a person will say about what they're going to do, but not quite as tight in predicting the actual behavior. Now, do you remember before I talked to you about what sort of framework do you bring to the situation when you've gathered the data? Some people, they don't want to devise their own framework. They go, look, I'm interested in yeah, things that have already been defined really well by other researchers, and I'm going to use their coding scheme because it's an honors project, and I can't invent my own coding scheme because then the markers will criticize me or query its validity, blah, blah, blah. So you can use other people's coding schemes. And so there are these ways of defining and coding for need achievement, need affiliation, and need for power. And very, very reliable ways of assessing them. Now, McClelland, a good Scotsman, the first way that he started to talk about need for achievement was to look at the gross national product of different countries and actually to assess them in need achievement based on how much wealth they generated in a given year. You can also code in terms of the frequency of certain words. How often do they use words that are lexically associated with these motives. And there's a really fantastic um, example from, I don't know if you know of a magazine called The Monthly that comes out in Australia. The most recent one has got a really brilliant article on climate deniers, climate change deniers. And, and the cool thing is that they analyze the kind of language that's been used around the debate and noticed how much more violent and extreme the language has got over the last 10 to to 15 years. So the climate may not be warming up, but the language that's describing the debate is getting very hot indeed, basically. It's a great article if you want to have a look at it. Very scary kind of article. Okay, so let me just give you examples. You can go to sleep if this isn't interesting. I'm just going to go very, very quickly. But if you're doing honours, you want to bring up someone else's framework, doing the analysis, you're looking for affiliation, you're interested in how to score it. Here's the definition. This is what you put in your methodology section. Need affiliation, a concern for establishing, maintaining, or restoring positive affect or relationship with another person or a group of people, and a concern for warm, close relations with others. See, it's really cool. You just lean on other people's scholarship, acknowledge it, date, yeah, and you're in business. Okay, so then you start to code. Anytime they're talking about positive feelings towards others, anything, they do something that's an affiliative move towards others. Friendly acts, nurturant acts. Sadness about the disruption of the relationship. You can see you could just start to code for the presence of these items, and that's the way to go. Power motive, one's desire to influence or have an effect on the behavior or emotions of other people. Good definition, nice and clear. You code anything about having an effect, control, influence, and it can be on a person or a social institution, a group, the world at large, forceful determination of behavior, how even helping, aid, is often power. 
you know, like if you if you support another country, it's often getting them on side with you politically, okay? Or an impressive display. Think peacock, you know, I'm the best bird in this sort of you know arena. That's the kind of thing that you would look at. People that jangle their keys are a lot. You know, those big clusters of keys, very important person, etc. Okay. Now, explicit motives are um, self-concepts that you have, what you think you're good at or not good at, values that you have, like it might be honesty, personal goals, might be to have an easeful life. Okay. Now, here's a real mouthful. I really want you to be comfortable with this by the end of this course, though, if that's cool. So this is an important slide. When I jump up and down, I would wake up, okay? I'm formally jumping up and down now, something that really is quite important. Okay, so implicit motives. They're preferences that you've got, things that you'd rather do, but they generalize. Now, the way that you acquire them is you've had a whole lot of emotional experiences, like, it's felt really sweet when you're close to people. So you want to repeat that. That's your motive. Or you really love it when you've got control over which party you go to next or which restaurant. So it becomes a motivation, if you like. Okay? And it's, in other words, it's a residue of all the sorts of emotional transactions that you've had between you and the environment. Often, very early on, prelingual, before language, which is often why it's quite hard to self-report on them, because they're just tendencies that you've got you know not where from, because you acquired them so early and you acquired them outside of language. Okay, so that's quite a nifty one. Now, we get socialised. If you grow up in a capitalist world, you, you really want to get more stuff and you want to get higher up on hierarchies. That's just how we're socialized. You want to be, you know, silver's not good enough, basically, you know? You missed out on the gold. You can't get something, oh, I really like silver, it's my favorite metal, this is great, thank you so much, and I can't believe I'm here, you know? It's not like that, it's why didn't you get gold, okay? So you really see those sorts of pathologies, unfortunately, in those kinds of contexts. And you notice that there are big individual differences um, between genders, between people, across cultures. You know, and that's because there are really different socialization practices. Gregory Bateson has written wonderful stuff about the way that the Balinese socialize their children in being able to cope with um, um, sort of delayed gratification, if you like. So motives, these kind of latent disposition, these behavioral dispositions, they lack symbolic representation. They're not readily put into language. People can't accurately report on the strength of them. And one of my friends did a PhD and discovered this the hard way. Tried to get them to self-report on motives, ended up using implicit measures and got great results. So if we can't get people to re report on them directly, how can we assess them? Well, I'm delighted to say, despite my pro-psychoanalytic bias, which I'm declaring for all to hear, fantasy-based methods are the best way to go. Projective tests. I don't mean the Rorschach, which is just too hard to score, believe me. But the thematic apperception test works very well. In other words, you use an ambiguous stimulus and you get the people to tell a story about the ambiguous stimulus. And in the process of resolving the ambiguity, they accidentally tell you something about themselves and they don't know that they are. Like, the joke is, I think, you know, you, you're preoccupied with sex, my good man, 
you know, this is after showing him ink blots, and he goes, oh, you're the one showing me the dirty pictures, doctor. You know, in other words, he, he just thinks they're obviously dirty pictures, whereas, of course, there's some ambiguity. And that's the interesting thing. Ambiguous stimulus, we don't see it as ambiguous. We resolve it in some way. We tell a story about it. We make sense of it. And in doing so, we offer something of ourselves. We make visible something of ourselves. There's a, a child's version of it called Blackie, and the little kids don't even realize that they're revealing things about their own life experience. They think they're just telling you about these two little dogs. Okay, so ethically, you've got to be quite careful because people are revealing more than they know that they're revealing, and that's important. So that's um, a recent, a relatively recent um, cross-cultural piece of research that used the thematic apperception test. I just want to give you some examples of it. Aren't they amazing? They're 1950s. You never know, eh? Not half. Okay, so you tell a story about that. What sorts of themes do you imagine? I'm so sorry, I'm not meaning to make you reveal your unconscious here, but it's pretty obvious what they're getting at there. It's bleeding obvious to me, you know. <laughs> what sorts of things are they trying to prime there? <laughs> it looks like a nun, that's great. It does actually, I see that, yes. So it could be about religiosity, yes? Exactly. It's tapping into your beliefs about people. The person behind could be someone evil. Fabulous. That's really great. You see, those are things that are in that picture. To me, what's obvious too, it's about femininity because they're both women and they're of different ages. Yeah. But there's so much more which you've picked up. We've got nuns and we've got evil notions and we've got suspicion, which is great. There you go. So you can sort of see how much you get out of these. This one? Okay, so Winter says motives involve wishes, desires, or goals that are often unconscious. And while traits can channel or direct the way that those motives are expressed, traits are different from motives. And they change throughout the life course. So people may not be aware of their motives, and that could be because they've actually got these goal-related cognitions that they think define who they are. And those goal-related cognitions, because they're schemas, can often really organize quite vivid memories and quite idealized self-conceptions. And people can really think that's who they are right to the end of their lives. And midlife crisis is sometimes when that comes apart. And also people can defend against knowledge of their true motives. There may be things that they're ashamed of they don't want to know are operative within themselves. So there are two different motive systems, implicit and self-attributed. This is another crucially important slide because it's weird, but it's true. In other words, a motive is something that is stably true of you. Okay, If you are high on need affiliation, that's one of your motives. However, you can move around within that motive space in that you can what a motive suggests happens is that you can be more rapidly aroused by a broad class of motive-relevant <laughs> things in the environment, like me with my car envy, you know, Peugeots are going to do it, you know, BMWs are going to do it, Porsches, I'm through the roof, do you know what I mean? It's like there's this broad array of stimuli that can make me envious. Okay, so what it means is that you're stably disposed to zoom up and down <laughs> contingently within that motivational space but it's going to sh make you pay attention to a broad class of array of things in the environment. And if they're there, your motive is going to get stimulated more than someone who doesn't have that motive as part of their personality. So the shorthand for that is that they're dispositionally stable and motivationally 
contingent. And it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. They're always true of you, but how high or low on them you are is contingent on what you've just experienced. So they're always part of your personality, but they have to be triggered to show. But there's a broad array of things that can trigger them, if that's a motive that you've got. Now, one of the big issues in psychology is everybody says traits are a matter of degree and personality types are seen as less desirable, the less desirable way of thinking. But one of the interesting things is that within the ideographic approach, you can map a person in terms of their personality types or their personality styles. And I'm going to be talking much more about this in the course. But what a typological approach does is it reduces the range of terms and it gets what they think are fundamental trade dimensions. So for I think it's extroversion and introversion and emotional stability or neuroticism. Okay, so those are the ones that he's got. Extroversion, introversion, emotional stability or emotional instability, which is also called neuroticism. And he's a typological theorist. He kind of categorizes you as being high and whether or not you're high or low on N. Another very famous typological thinker is Freud. This typology didn't last all that long, but um, he says if you get too much or too little pleasure from a particular zone in your body at a particular developmental stage, you will end up fixated at that particular libidinal stage. So if you're an oral personality, you tend to not really want to have to work for your money. You want lady luck to provide. So it's the sort of, it's the role of the, of the addictive personality, someone who's also swallows things rather too easily gullible, a sucker or a gourmand, someone who's very interested in good food, good wine, and wants it now, basically, not prepared to wait. So it's that kind of impulsive personality. If you've got an anal personality, he suggests because, um, around 18 months when you first gain control over your sphincter muscle, it's the first time that your parents can realistically say to you, not now, later, not here, there, you know, um, and they can place all sorts of demands on you. And of course, that's the first time that you see kids going, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so control, defiance. Because they've required that you do things in a certain time and place, you can actually become quite obsessed with the right time, the right place. You can get really orderly, really stubborn, really stingy. Okay, so that sort of anal aggression or anal orderliness is part of the whole typology that Freud says. If you're a phallic personality, not, not big on loyalty, serial monogamist at best, possibly two-timer, one-night stands, that kind of thing. So another kind of impulsive than the oral one, you've got a different kind of object. Okay. He also had another kind of uh, series of character types called um, character types met with an analysis. I love this article. I like short articles, and this is tiny. So he talks about people that see themselves as the exceptions. My brother-in-law used to always say speed limits are for anyone else that's not driving a little red Volkswagen. Okay, so he thought he was the exception to the road rules because of his car. Okay, but lots of people think they're the exceptions. Like, yes, I know everyone else had to be signed up last week, but I'm signing up this week, right? Um, unfortunately, life does make you into the exception sometimes. Um, narcissistic people, ironically, are people he thought were wrecked by success. 
you know, they were going well until they became famous, and then suddenly they're in the Betty Ford Clinic. Okay, with certain kinds of pale criminals or obsessions, they had to do something awful so that they would be punished by the world, and then they'd feel relief. It was like they had some deep-seated guilt that pre-existed the crime. Now, he's not saying that's true of every criminal. That's only true of what he calls pale criminals, people who have a pre-existing form of guilt, and they commit the crime in order to be punished, which brings relief. Jack Block, we're going to talk about him later, he, he um, devises a typology based on how much ego control you've got. Can you restrain your impulses? Are you over-restrained, be over-controllers? How resilient are you? Can you be calm under stress? That's one of the typologies that he talks about. Jane Lervinger actually has a typology, nine different types, and she assesses your level of morality based on the way that you complete sentence completion stems. What's neat about this methodology, and I've used this um, a couple of times in my life, is that everybody gets the same sentence stems, which means it's a bit of a breeze to code, because it kind of brings some order to the situation, but everybody finishes the sentence in their own way. So ones that we used for a second year project was, what's great about being a woman is, or the best aspect of being male in this culture is. Right? So it was picking up um, notions of gender. Um, so she can assess the degree to which you've taken on board values that you really believe in, as opposed to values that you're just conforming to, but you don't truly endorse. And you go up the ego development scale as you have you know, more endorsement and more capacity to refuse to do things just because your culture requires it of you. The most famous typology theorist wrote a book called Psychological Types in, I think, 1926, but don't quote me, it's around that time. Certainly it was before the Nazis. Um, very relevant, though. Um, he, he certainly saw that there were these types of people, and he was really interested to map them clinically. Um, he saw the source of motivation not being sexual. Freud thought it was sexuality. Um, Jung wanted to say there was just this life force that wasn't connected to sexuality, but that you could either turn that life force out towards the world, and those were his terms, extroversion, or turn them within, which was introversion. And he sort of suggested that that was what made up your attitude to life. You were either putting your energy out or your energy was going in. But then there was another kind of carve-up, really, over and above that attitude, he said, what's the dominant function for you? Are you someone who thinks or feels? Are you someone who has to sort of get empirical evidence from your senses? Or can you go beyond the evidence of your senses and intuit what's going on? Okay, And so depending on which one was dominant for you, that would tell you what kind of type you were. How are we going for time? So what his method was that he sat back and derived this conceptually. So it's an a priori structure. You remember the slide, what structure do you bring to the data? He brought an a priori structure to the data, one that he had set up in advance via critical conceptual analysis. But he left it open to some kind of empirical testing because he was a clinician. And he was testing, in a way, in the clinical setting whether or not his uh, theory worked. And he had this notion that if one attitude was dominant in your conscious functioning, your unconscious functioning would be overrepresented by the other attitude. 
Okay? So if you were extroverted consciously, there were, in your unconscious there would be sort of introverted features and vice versa. So what's interesting from my point of view is that there are many different ways of being extroverted and introverted and it depends very much on which other psychological function predominates in a person. This is picked up on in that chapter, Analysis of Lives, as well. And so some examples that um, Winter gives in Analysis of Lives is that you get people like Darwin. He was a thinking extrovert. He just wanted to gather plant types, find out different species of birds, cluster them together, you know, out there in the world. Kant, much more a thinking introvert, quite convinced of his own correctness, says Winter, and makes very little effort to communicate or win approval for his ideas. He was pretty convinced that he was right. Feeling, um, what I like about Jung is he thinks that feeling is rational, and I think feelings are rational as well. They're the sort of immediate valuations of objects that you have, and the feeling extrovert, someone who likes to be in synchrony with the external world, sort of quite world-focused. But the feeling introvert is someone who likes to really be oriented and in synchrony with their inner life. And the poetess um, Emily Dickinson is an excellent example of that. So thinking and feeling are rational because they involve active mental participation and judgments about pleasure and pain. So they're active and they entail judgments. So he sees them as rational. It's not like cognition equals rational. Feeling equals a big distraction from rationality. He sees them both as quite rational. And sensing and intuiting are irrational because he thinks they don't involve active judgment. That's very much his view on things. And sensing anything that that makes you oriented towards the empirical world, the external world, the sensory world. Um, So extroverts are people that are really caught up in scenarios arising and quite discerning about what's happening in the external world. Sensing introverts, oh, is my heart rate going up? You know, what about what's happening with my blood pressure? What 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 just happened then with my body? So they're very focused on the internal environment. Intuiting, it sounds a bit sort of new age, but I actually think we intuit quite a lot. It's where I think we actually have perceived something, but we just haven't been completely aware at the time of perceiving it what we have. So you know, if you just get a feeling that you don't quite trust someone, okay, it might be that you've picked up on a micro momentary facial expression that was too fast for you consciously to be aware of. But nonetheless, you picked up on it. I challenge you and say, on what basis don't you trust that person? You go, no. You know, does that mean you're wrong? No. It just means you've picked up on something at an intuitive level that you can't necessarily give voice to. And I think that's still a form of knowledge. Intuiting extroverts are people like those who just know what will work in a poker game or the stock market. And feeling introverts... Um, for Jung, he gets a bit unusual. He thinks it's when we're p- picking up on what he called archetypes. These were sort of inborn, innate residues of the foregoing um, ancestors. Uh, it means that we have issues around the wise man or the witch or the fool or the jester, that there are these kind of archetypal imagos or images at an unconscious level that shape our unconscious processes. And if you're an intuitive introvert, you might pick up on that and, and know about that. 
Now, if this ever comes into your workplace, run is my <laughs> suggestion, because invariably they bring in the Jungian-based Myers-Briggs typology when they want to fire someone, and it's usually used to justify that. So I always get very scared when this gets used. It's actually quite an interesting um, typology. You can find heaps of examples of it online. You'll be able to do your Jungian type if you fill in the questionnaires. And um, it, it really tells you a lot about, you know, what sorts of functions you're dominant in and whether you're extroverted and introverted. Extroversion and introversion are quite differently operationalized using this measure than um, ISYNC's measure or the Big Five's measure. So even though it's got the same name, it's a different construct. I just need to alert you to that because I think I'm extroverted on one and introverted on the other. It's, it's quite odd. You, you, yeah, you're classified quite differently depending on how they've cashed out or operationalized the concept. And what you, you can sort of link this to heaps of things, like do people you know, become anesthetists as part of their medical specialty? Um, what sort of conversational topics do they have? How, what do they emphasize in conversation? Uh, how, how do they recollect the past, their own past? What sort of interpersonal details do they remember from conversation? This has all been quite nicely linked um, by Ray Carlson to your Myers-Briggs type. Um, and certain types are linked with more emotional memories that are more interpersonally focused or more vivid, or people that just stick with the observable facts, the thinking, sensing types, whereas the intuiting types are those who can go well beyond the data. And Helson had a look at um, how people respond to um, literary outputs, and you can actually code for what types of people respond to what kinds of information which is quite a nice way to work. So that's extroverted, introverted, sensing, intuiting, and thinking, feeling. Those are kind of the ways that you would code for the sorts of responses they have. So you could give someone a newspaper article, say, write two sentences about that newspaper article, and then you could use these as codes to see whether or not you would guess that that person was either extroverted or introverted, sensing or intuitive, thinking or feeling as their dominant function. So that would be how you'd use that kind of system. And Helson's done this, looking at the way that people write literary criticism. And she shows that you can pick, on a, uh, pick up a person's Jungian function by the way that they speak and, and what they write about. Now for Jung, he suggests, look, you're born with certain things, being in the ascendancy, being you know, um, in the lead in a sense. And it makes us more or less susceptible to certain kinds of events in life. We notice them more, we remember them more. But he says what, what each of us is, is quite a unique combination of these functions. And that in a sense, we have to work with what we've got at a personality level, of typological level. And he says that you have to sort of strip away the false persona, which is what culture requires you, you know, to be, the false self or the obedient or the conformist. Um, but you also have to get free from what he called the primordial images, which is the archetypes, which can make you a bit insane. And he's speaking from personal experience because he actually had a, a psychotic breakdown mid-career and came back from it superbly. So, so he really, um, you know, bases a lot of his work both on the clinical people that he saw but as also his own experience. And he suggests that one of the tasks in life is to regain a certain fluidity that's vital for personal and cultural development rather than feeling stuck, boxed, typed, you know. So he definitely didn't want 
his personality typology to be used just to pigeonhole people. He said, the, what you aim for in life is no longer to be a touchy bundle of egotistical wishes and fears, compensated for by unconscious counter-tendencies. So he's got quite a gloomy picture of the way it could be. He says, no, he wants you to relate to the world of objects and to be concerned with collective problems, not just your own problems. Okay, let's leave it there today. Any final little question and things about today? Fantastic. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'll see you next week. That was Lecture 22 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.